0: You're listening to the Unsiled podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsilied is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is uh, Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, Wendy Smith, who is a professor of management at the University of Delaware's Lerner College of Business. And she is also the uh, co-author, along with Marianne Lewis, of this book called Both and Thinking, Embracing Creative Tensions to Solve Your Toughest Problems. Welcome, Wendy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Okay, so I found out that you are the leader of this field called paradox studies, which I actually didn't even know about until I encountered your book. And then I started digging around and looked up some of your older work. But what's interesting about your work, if I could summarize it, and it's kind of hard to summarize, there's so many different things embedded in your work, but we in economics and in strategy, you know, we're always trying to distill everything down to choices, And I know at the very beginning of my strategy class, I say, hey, strategy is about deciding what you're going to do and what you're not going to (laughs) do, right? And at the beginning of microeconomics class, we do these things called decision trees, and we emphasize the importance of trade-offs. And we say, you know, the only way you can get one thing is to give up something else. And I think this way of thinking is very powerful. But I think your point is that if you push that way of thinking too hard, you are going to leave a lot of insight on the table. And so you characterize that as either or thinking, or I think contingency thinking is another word that you used in your articles to describe that way of thinking. And you juxtapose it with a different way of thinking, maybe a different perspective, we should call it, that opens up insights. And you borrow from fields like improv, I love that, and even from the world of therapy to introduce people to this framework viewpoint perspective and i found a lot in there so you mentioned that paradox you've been thinking about this for a long time and it went back to some insights from psychology and from philosophy how did you come up i mean i know this is a question everybody asks you but like how did you come up with the notion of paradox studies paradox science right why do you call it paradox studies paradox science
1: Greg, I love that you started us off right in the heart of the matter. And that was a great summary. So, I almost want to leave it there. Indeed, the overarching idea here is that the way that we tend to frame and address our challenges, our competing demands, we frame them as these trade-offs either or we have to make a choice. And we actually reach back. We reach back even before psychology and before, you know, psychoanalysis. We we reach back like 2500 years to Greek philosophy, to Buddhist philosophy, and draw that and pull that forward and say, the alternative way to think about this is through this lens of paradox in both. And um, in fact, we think that organizational studies, strategy, economics, leadership, we're kind of late to the paradox party, meaning that what we have seen is that the underlying idea is that our world is constructed with interdependent opposites, that these directly contradictory opposing forces are actually reinforcing interdependent. And if we move away from our binary linear thinking about them and apply and think about them in a more holistic interdependent approach, we come to better decisions. And when I say we're late to the paradox party, what we found is that other fields like physics have been talking about this for the last 150 years. So, so if we've moved into this kind of linear thinking away from paradoxical thinking and into more linear thinking for several hundred years, other fields like physics and quantum physics have adopted this kind of thinking. Or as you mentioned, psychoanalysis has recognized that the inner self has this paradoxical element, physics understanding that the material world has this paradoxical nature. And so we in the organizational strategy economics world are just waking up to this over the last 30 years or so.
0: Well, in the business context, right, you know, we're always talking about these dyads, The most famous one, I think, is the explore versus exploit. And I think you spent a lot of time on that. But we also talk about the organizational architectures that match with them, right? Whether they're, you know, hierarchical or flat. And then, you know, we talk about the purpose of business and we talk about, you know, should we be pursuing profit or should we be pursuing, you know, the good of the community and so forth. And I think a skeptic would read your book and say, wait, she's saying we can have it all. We don't have to make any of these difficult choices. We can somehow figure out a way to have it all. And, you know, I talk to my economics colleagues. They get super, super frustrated because they'll pose a dilemma to an MBA student, right? Like an ethical dilemma. And they'll say, okay, do you do what's right or do you do what makes you money? And the MBAs always answer, at least the ones here at Berkeley, I don't know what they say elsewhere in the world, but they say, we're going to do both. And of course, my economics colleagues is like, no, 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 you, you missed the hypothetical. The hypothetical was you can't do both. But I always thought it was really wonderful that they're searching for a way, right? They're searching for a way around this dichotomy and they're trying to find the falseness in the dichotomy if it's there. Do you think that what you're describing, is it a hypothesis about the world or is it a hypothesis about the ways we understand the world?
1: Greg, when somebody poses an oar like that to me, I would say, oh.
0: <laughs> I set you up.
1: <laughs> right. That is, in fact, the way that paradox thinking and paradox theory would describe that which is that there are these two undercurrents one is that the inherent world is in fact paradoxical there are these opposing ideas that are interdependent that the way that we construct and understand the world surfaces and understands that and there within the scholarship within the community of scholars there's diversity of who believes more of one or the other and as is the tradition of both and thinking of paradoxical thinking, there are scholars and Marianne and I have been two of those that have talked about, well, how do we understand the relationship between both an inherent approach and a socially constructed approach? And we've argued that there is an inherent nature to our world that is paradoxical and our understanding of the world, our social construction, our framing, our mindsets, surfaces, makes that salient to us, which gives us the power or the tools, the possibility to navigate our competing demands in another way. We also have... An amazing paper by our colleagues, Tobias Hahn and Eric Knight, who wrote about an even deeper and more complex way of understanding that relationship by using quantum physics as a sensitizing lens in which, and it gets a little bit heady and complex, but talks about paradox as existing but not formulated until we Bring our measuring constructed lens on it. So that gets a little more complicated. But indeed, that is a perspective of, or that notion of the interdependence of these approaches is written about within the scholarship for sure.
0: Well, I mean, you talk about the cognitive biases, you know, that's one of my favorite topics, but also you talk about sort of the emotional motivations that would lead us towards this either or way of thinking. And I think part of what you're arguing is that it's sort of more naturally comfortable to be in this way of thinking. And there's something inherently, you know, more difficult about both-and thinking. Now, of course, I mean, if someone offers me both-and, that sounds wonderful. But so why is it so, I guess, emotionally difficult to think about the world in this both-and way?
1: Yeah. And I want to go back to just ground this idea a little bit more, because just earlier you had mentioned this idea That we talk a lot about, about explore, exploit, today and tomorrow, navigating. That's actually where I started on this journey of unpacking paradox for me. And for me, the study was looking at IBM as they were facing a massive technological shift moving into what we now know as cloud computing. And the innovation space, the strategy space would say okay, so you have to make a trade off between whether you're going to spend your resources, time, attention, structuring yourself around what you currently do today in your existing world, or are you going to manage the change and move into something new and novel? And the conventional wisdom is you have to make real clear choices around that. The alternative perspective is how do you notice? How do you recognize that actually your existing world is not going to go away anytime soon? And you have to manage your existing world alongside your new innovative space in order for your organization to be successful. And so then the question becomes how? And the important thing here is that It's not just you can have it all, your plate gets bigger and overflows. It's that there is a deeper and actually kind of complicated analysis of how is it that the resources that you are investing in the future support, enable, and allow you to continue to do what you do operationally today more effectively? How is it that what you do today actually creates the conditions for tomorrow and for innovation and for change? How are they interdependent with one another? To enable you to be more creative in how you then go forward. And then you actually have to make some choices. Am I going to put more engineers on the existing project or more engineers on the new thing? But what we say and what we find in our research is that those choices are the micro either or choices in service of the macro both and. You're making these sort of oscillating shifts. You're not overemphasizing one side or overemphasizing the other. So I wanted to just sort of solidify this idea, and then we can go back to your question about emotion. I think it's a good one.
0: Well, so it sounds like there's a cultural element, there's an organizational design element, and they have to match. But it seems like the and or thinking is most important, kind of the higher up in the organization you go. So presumably, you know, if you have a team of engineers over here, they could be working on one thing and another team of engineers working on another thing. So you don't have to take this particular way of thinking and push it all the way down to every individual and every activity that they're participating in. I mean, they can even create these boundaries that you talk about between different parts of their job or different parts of their day. So you don't have to live in this state of, you know, suspended animation 24/7, but rather it's a way of thinking that is Really, it's strategic, right? It's something that's most important at the highest level and most abstract level of thought, right?
1: So I would say yes and to that. I think that's an empirical question and one that we've been asked by leaders, especially with the underlying assumption that I think you're bringing here, which is absolutely right, which is that it is cognitively complex and it is emotionally challenging. And by the way, just to unpack the emotionally challenging, it the idea of living in the both ends sometimes means that we're leaving decisions open for longer than we would want to. And that creates a whole lot of anxiety. It creates uncertainty, which creates anxiety and fear. And it also means that if we have a strong point of view about something and someone else has a strong point of view about the opposite, that we are accommodating, acknowledging, embedding, accepting that opposite point of view rather than defending ourselves against it, which is also really hard for people to do. So indeed, this assumption that it's cognitively complex and emotionally challenging is absolutely right. Sometimes we talk about paradox in both end and both and to make it sound sort of easy, and I don't want to do that. That said, I think there's to the idea that you can navigate it at the top of the organization and then not have to deal with it lower down. So to name that, that would sort of be framed around this idea, as you know, in in the literature of structural ambidexterity, Mike Tushman and Charles O'Reilly and others, and that's sort of the heritage that I come out of. Mike Tushman was my thesis advisor. There is this open, and, and part of the idea there is let's spare people in the organization from this complexity, and we have seen that ways in which leaders have cascaded this kind of thinking down into their organization. And it has been incredibly powerful. So one example that we use in the book is Paul Pullman at Unilever that has cascaded throughout a hundred thousand person organization, thinking about the interdependencies between profit and planet or, you know, mission and markets, social financial. And that's been incredibly powerful and how he's done it has been incredibly powerful to align the organization around this. And I think that one the things that we found through our work is that this is a really powerful lens for strategy and organizational leaders it's also a really powerful lens for how we deal with our own individual challenges whether as employees or whether in our personal lives and so i think theoretically we are advocates for sort of the value that people can understand and engage with this ar- approach and that it's hard to do for organizations to cascade it down but that there is value in the work to try
0: yeah. So I think it was in, in one of your articles that you went into this contrast with this contingency school. And I think I would I would summarize the contingency school as the fitlet because that's that's what we do, right? We you know we talk about, okay, this architecture fits this business or, you know, this way of thinking fits this architecture. Right. And so we're always trying to figure out like what key fits what hole. And so, you know, when I, I did your survey at the back of the book. So you have this one it's inventory. And I have to say that I, I circled sevens on every one. So I guess I got the maximum possible score. And of course, that makes me a little weird. And and when I teach, you know, I run into all sorts of resistance with a lot of MBAs because MBAs don't like this, right? They don't like not having a nice clear cut takeaway that they can run to the bank with and they don't like having things described in terms of, you know, stories that seem to be in contradiction. And yet, right, if everybody was a seven all the way down, I think things would kind of stop functioning, right? Don't we need some ones out there to make sure the lights stay on? I mean, is there a comparative advantage to either or thinking and both and thinking for, you know, stable world versus dynamic world, right? You emphasize that in today's world in particular, you know, we need a whole lot more of these both hand individuals and both hand organizations. Is there a comparative advantage to the two?
1: Yeah, maybe. I think that's a great hypothesis. The research will, that we've found both with the inventory and then with some colleagues of ours, my colleague Mariah Besheroff, who is now at Oxford, had some research around the work of leaders. Our colleagues, Michael Smets and Tim Morris, also at Oxford, have done some work around leaders. So certainly at the leadership level, what we find is that people get promoted when they're able to see the bigger picture. So to your point earlier, there is something about leadership that needs to engage with this. So I think those like, In in the name of one of my advisors, Ellen Langer, who's a psychologist, who talked about three phases. There's the phase of engaging something new, the phase of rejecting it, and then the phase of engaging it in a whole new way. And here's what I mean by that we tend to be either or thinkers and how can we invite people to the party, to the alternative way of thinking as an alternative tool? And so in some ways, the over-enthusiasm might be that we become so engaged in both and thinking, we don't see it as one possibility for a larger set of tools. And again, we have this idea and we call it in the book, tightrope walking. And this is what I was explaining earlier, which is that part of both and thinking in the big picture is indeed being open to either-or thinking in the context of both-ands. And And so, and here's what I mean by that. When oftentimes people will say to us, both-and or an either-or, isn't that an either-or? And so that's where you get into the more complex approach, which is how do you embed these as multiple tools and then think about their relationship to one another? And the way to do that, or what we found, and this came out of my IBM research, was that there is this complex way of making either-or choices to enable the both and So when I went into IBM to study how they navigated, explore, exploit, I had anticipated, as many people do, that paradox both-and would lead to these ideal win-wins, creative integrations, both are accommodated today and tomorrow in these really creative approaches to their strategy and their structure and their decision-making. And that happens sometimes, but it didn't happen as often as I thought. So, So in the book, we call that the mule, like this... The first hybrid that we've been breeding for 3,000 years, stronger than a donkey, stronger than a horse, uh, smarter than a donkey. And we anticipate that those mules are what we're going to find. Those creative integrations, win-wins, are what we're going to find when we juxtapose opposing ideas. But like at IBM, that doesn't happen all the time. And instead, they are doing what we call this idea of tightrope walking, which, as I was saying earlier, making either or choices in the moment, but in service of the bigger both and. And so if we think about it in our personal lives, people, when, I, when we do workshops around this and ask people to talk about tensions they're experiencing in work, the one that comes up all the time, most often, is this tension of work-life balance. Well, work-life balance doesn't have a lot of these like win-wins. I I used to joke when I first had my twins that like the ideal win-win was that I would open up a daycare and life would be work and work would be life. And like those don't happen a lot. Instead, what we do is we do this tightrope walking where we're making these micro decisions between, you know, do I spend today with my family doing X or tomorrow in my commitment to my work? Those micro decisions, but it's these micro either or choices that we're making in the moment in service of seeing how work can enable life and life can enable work in the bigger picture. And if we first frame the decision in that bigger picture, whether it's the profit and you know social financial profit planet mission market decision, or whether it's the work life decision and understand that if an organization can effectively engage with this sustainability agenda, engage with a social mission, and how that can enable their financial performance, rather than framing it as a trade-off between the two of them, it opens up a whole new way of approaching each of these micro decisions.
0: Yeah, but I think the metaphor of the tightrope walker highlights its difficulty, right? You know, you have another section of the book where you talk about rabbit holes, and obviously, it's much easier to find an equilibrium inside a rabbit hole, right? Once you're there, you're, you're going to stay there. Whereas if you're on the tightrope, there's always the danger you're going to slip off, right?
1: I just have to say, I'm so glad you said that because th- we had debated whether we use the image of the bicycle because the bicycle has a similar kind of context. You're never to go straight. You're always kind of, or somebody had mentioned to us, like standing is the same thing. You think you're standing still, but actually you're constantly making these micro movements. But we stuck with that image of the tightrope walker to convey that it is hard.
0: You could have somebody riding a bicycle on a tightrope.
1: Exactly, right? Let's just, let's raise the game.
0: (laughs) But some people would say, okay, look, another metaphor is brown, right? If you take all the colors and you put them together, then you just get this big old brown sludge, right? And so if for some reason you forget what the ingredients are that are going into this set of balancing, then you just you just wind up with sludge. And so the managers don't know what they're doing and people don't know what they're doing and they're improvising, but they're improvising without a map and without a plan and so they're just planning to fail. So, how do you push back against that fear that you're just going to wind up with a mess?
1: Yeah. I love that question. Great question that we label that sludge the false integration, right? So we there there is within our lexicon this idea of a false dichotomy where we pull things apart and actually we, the other side of that is the false integration where there is this assumption in the big picture that we have integrated something that we have found, but we actually haven't done the work to get there and the work to get there and it's an important point is we talk about it in the book as separating and connecting. In academia, we use the language of differentiating and integrating. And the idea is that in order to effectively navigate in this both and space, we have to be able to pull apart the opposing tensions, do a deep dive into understanding each one in service of a more profound, thoughtful, creative, understood holistic synergy. And I think you're pointing that out right there because if you don't, you're just in in brown, in sludge. And what that looks like in organizations is we're having a debate in a senior leadership team about a strategy, breadth or depth or you know expansion or contraction or whatever you know it might be. And we have two different people that are taking very different sides of this and this happens all the time. And in order to be able to get to a better place, we need to stop. I mean, this is like basics of the practices of what we do here. We need to pause and listen to both sides. It's the same thing with our politics today, which is that if we're going to get to a better place in our political spheres, it's not about does left or right win, progressive or conservative. It's how do we listen to each other's sides so that we can understand the value of what each has to say so that we can come to a better way of working together, integrating with one another. Otherwise, We're not in brown there. We're just in a shouting match.
0: Yeah, I think you talk about trench warfare as one of the pitfalls. But to introduce another kind of false dichotomy, I mean, if we don't have trench warfare, sometimes what you have is the kind of agree to disagree, right, phenomenon. And I see that a lot, particularly in my classroom, right, where people will just agree to disagree, and then they'll move on. And they haven't figured out a way to extract the insights from both sides, right? They're just sort of saying, here's my idea and here's your idea and they're different. So let's all go our separate ways. So how do you navigate this at the micro level when you're talking about actual conversations between people? And this is where I, I really enjoyed your referencing therapy and referencing Improv, even. I think a lot of business schools are starting to introduce improv into the curriculum. We've done this here at Berkeley, and I think we're doing it at Stanford as well. Do you do improv in in any of your classes?
1: It's funny that you should ask. I want to give a shout out to uh, Kelly Leonard and the Second City and Anne and the Second City team that are doing a ton of work. And I don't know if you've worked with them to bring in improv strategies into the classroom and actually to research the impact of improv practices on a whole lot of things, including how we show up and how inclusive we are. We're engaging with them and in conversation with them about some research around these very ideas because some of those specific practices enable the kinds of openness curiosity connection that allow for this type of thinking and You know, when it comes to the the agree to disagree, like sometimes that's actually a fine strategy if we are hitting an impasse and there's nowhere to go. But at least it has to start with the agreement to be in conversation. What we're finding in politics and, and in the classroom, too, sometimes is that agree to disagree means I can't deal with the emotional challenge of even listening to your point of view because it's so problematic to me. And I think that's the problem, which is giving or that's the opportunity, if you will, which is inviting people into the tools to know that listening is a form of respect. It doesn't mean you have to agree. It means you have to engage or that it doesn't mean that you are agreeing. It means that you are respecting somebody that they have a different point of view than you and you're engaging and accepting that there is a different point of view out there. And sometimes listening to hard things that we absolutely don't agree with with curiosity can be a really powerful tool to be able to get to a better point. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to find this ideal integration. Sometimes it's that the integration is just sitting with, we have different points of view and we're going to sit alongside each other. But we're not sitting in the trench warfare metaphor. We're not sitting in our own little bubbles, reinforcing the us versus them, solidifying our arguments and kind of dehumanizing the other side. That's where it becomes problematic.
0: And you talk about how we're living in a time of greater change, greater scarcity, greater plurality, or at least those are three things that would presumably make this change in mindset more desirable. Could you talk about exactly what you mean by that? Is it simply the fact that things are changing more quickly in the business world? And if that's the case, why would that be so emotionally disturbing to people, right? I understand this idea that we want closure, we want to avoid uncertainty, right? So that's a well-known psychological phenomenon, but it's also kind of exciting, right? And it's kind of invigorating. So why do you think that the discomfort outweighs the excitement when it comes to constant change?
1: Yeah, so what we find in our research is that these three conditions, change, plurality, and scarcity, and I can unpack them a little bit surface, bring to light. So what we would argue is that these paradoxes exist, but oftentimes they are, they're not salient to us. They're underneath the surface. We don't see the substructure of paradox and how it informs our thinking. Change, plurality, and scarcity brings them to light. So the more change that there is, the faster that tomorrow becomes today, and the more that there is this tension between the past and the future, tradition and modernization, the old and the new, and all of that bubbles up the more scarcity or experience of scarcity of resources, the more that there is this conflict over you versus me, self versus other, the boundaries between different people and the conflict over resources. And the more plurality, and what we mean by that is a diversity of voices, the more that there are different perspectives, identities, and approaches, and that those come in conflict with each other. So what we would argue is that they bring the tensions to light, and they also bring to light the underlying paradoxes of those tensions. And if that's the case, then it creates the challenge or opportunity, depending on, it's a double-edged sword, depending on the way you want to think about it, for us to navigate those challenges. And in fact, what's been fascinating to us, and one of the reasons we wrote the book is that we've been thinking about this for the last 20, 25 years in our research. And for a, a while, it was convincing people that there was value in thinking about our, moving from either or to both And And then over the last 20 years and increasingly the last 10 years or so, we've seen this language of both and coming up in the popular press, particularly in leadership and the demands consultants and coaches putting out this increased expectation that leaders need to think paradoxically. So PricewaterhouseCoopers has a whole piece on this and Deloitte. And I just did a piece with a large consulting firm in Denmark that is embedding this idea of and as the core competency for leaders. And so if there has been a bit of a shift into recognizing that these paradoxes exist and that we need to navigate them, we wrote the book to say, okay, well, how can we pull together research by a really expanding and fabulous community of scholars to say how do we do that
0: yeah i think you cited there was a pwc study that mentioned a couple of things one of which was kind of a tech savvy humanist a really good business education will do that right people talk about poets versus quants but really you know what you want is you want to quote it, right? <laughs> a quote po- right a poant i don't know what you call them but you want someone who has and I don't want to say struck a balance, because if I say balance, it sounds like an either or thing. But I think to get back to your this, what we were describing, those three things, that would fit into your two by two. So I love, you know, you have a two by two, you have to have a two by two in a, in a business book. But on the one axis, that's where you have a tension. That's sort of referencing, I guess, the outside world to some degree. And then on the other axis, you have the mindset, right? And so as the tensions force the paradoxes to the surface, then the mindset has to adapt. That's the idea behind the two by two, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I just want to, you know, I love the work in our field of Jim March, who talks about, you talked about explore, exploit, that's Jim March, but also he talks about leaders need to navigate the poetry and the plumbing, as you're saying, right? So it, so indeed it's both in that domain But yes, and in fact, so here's the tricky part on that. We talk about that applying paradoxical thinking, adopting a paradox mindset is two things. It's both experiencing the tensions that are out there and applying a both-and approach to those tensions. Well, here's what's interesting about experiencing the tensions. We could experience more tensions because we are in a setting where there are more tensions. Our colleague that did this work with us is Israeli, and she said, look, It's just more tense in Israel than it is in New Zealand. And so there is just these change, plurality, scarcity, these conditions, you know, raise the stakes on the heat of tensions and demand of us to think about them in a different way. The other possibility is that we raise the stakes on the tensions. I was mentioning Paul Pullman earlier earlier. He is really clear that these tensions exist. Tensions are neither good nor bad. They're double-edged that if we use them in a productive way, they can inspire creativity and possibility and be generative just to emphasize that point I'm a big fan of Mary Parker Follett who wrote in the early 1900s who says conflict is neither good or bad and she uses this great metaphor of like friction is what creates the beautiful music when you have friction between a violin bow and strings that you know it's like that friction conflict creates possibilities and so Paul Pullman said to us look if I know that tensions exist, and I know that they can be generative if we surface them. Most people will hide them under the rug. I ask for them. I ask my leaders, where are these tensions so that we can work through them together in service of something better? So this experiencing tension side is both a function of the context and the environment around you, and it's also a function of the individual's social construction mindsets of bringing them out and surfacing them and being okay emotionally to raise them up and put them on the table.
0: So, you know, since you're in the school of March, then, you know, you would argue that the perspective that people have has to match the kind of organization that they're operating within. And so if you're advising companies, right, if you're trying to get companies to switch from having a dysfunctional both organization and culture, how do you initiate some kind of change? You know, in business schools, we're always split between, we've got the organizational behavior people over here who think everything's culture, and then you've got the economists who think everything's, you know, about incentives and, you know, chain of command and routine. Well, routines kind of fit somewhere in the middle. How do we take, say, and this is the problem that, of course, Charles O'Reilly and Mike Tushman are interested in, you know, how do you take... What you might think of as legacy organization, legacy architecture, legacy way of thinking and shift it.
1: One of the exciting parts of publishing the book is that we've been invited to engage in this question with some large organizations. So we are grateful to the opportunity to see this in action. And the way that we structured the book was indeed, so I think there's two answers to that. The first is, what's the bigger picture of how you get there? And then the second is, how do you get started? And I think both are relevant. And we structured the book we into what we say is the paradox system. And the idea here is that getting there, it's not about the, do you change the culture or do you change the incentives? right? It's how do you create the system? What are those sets of tools and buckets across the system to be able to address and embed both and thinking? And Here we talk about and we label it assumptions, boundaries, comfort, and dynamics. ABCD. And I'll tell you, we spent a lot of time on those labels. (laughs) But the idea and the idea is that part of the change is about how we help make changes to the individual hearts and minds. So assumptions is about cognition, the way we think, our mindsets, the way we're asking questions, the way we're framing issues, about individual mindsets. Comfort is the issues that you were bringing up earlier about how we help to navigate the conditions where we can address the difficult emotional parts. And importantly, creating the conditions where we don't reject the... We we talk about it as finding comfort in the discomfort, meaning that we don't reject the uncomfortable defensiveness, fear, anxiety, all of that, but that we honor it and accept it and find ways to navigate amid it. So on one axis is the individual ways of changing hearts and minds, cognition and intuition. And then the boundaries and dynamics are on the other axis, which are about... Creating the conditions to shift the context in the organization. Boundaries are about the stable structuring, the scaffolding, the habits, the roles and goals. It's about how we set our a higher purpose vision to encompass competing demands. It's about how we, as we said earlier, separate and connect or create guardrails so that we don't go too far in either direction. They're the stable features. And then dynamics are the, how do we embed within our organization a set of practices that allow us to be dynamic, changing, experimental, trying new things along the way. So at the sort of bigger level, and I, I always hesitate because there's so much to unpack here. I almost want to say like go read the book. It each there's a chapter on each of these, but you know it's both the individual and it's the organ contextual, the environmental, and it's both you know stable and dynamic. It's it's both individual minds and hearts. So it's all of that. If you're going to make what we know about change overall in organizations is that and this is Tushman and Nadler's congruence model from the late 1980s, early 1990s. If you're going to make and another system level models, not just theirs. But if you're going to make change, you have to make change at the system level. And this is the system level of creating both and. And I'm happy to unpack more of that. But the idea is that it's multiple, it's a system. The other piece of this, just very briefly, is people will say, well, how do you get started? And Mm -hmm. here we would go to almost the eclipsed and very quick entree into both and thinking, which is that what we argue is getting started is about changing the questions that we ask And we use our I often use this metaphor of meditating. meditating has become a bigger deal in our world. if we think about meditating as a lifelong practice for more calm and it's complex, the first practice to meditate that any meditation studio will tell you is that you have to focus on your breath and that's your sort of entryway in. We would say that, the entryway into both and thinking is changing the question, which is that as soon as we hear an either or question, if we reframe it into how can I do A and B, it invites in a whole different kind of thinking. And even in my teaching in business schools, I think business school professors, we are so guilty of putting up on the board, the alternative options and inviting in the conversation that says, which one to force a deeper level of analysis the the next level of question there is okay how can i accommodate what would it look like what are the options what does that mean that invites us into a different level of engaging
0: yeah i was thinking that if you are someone who i mean you have this wonderful assessment that people can take and you know i don't think that people are born that way i think well either they're born that way and then they gradually start sorting into different buckets, but I don't think that this is something that is inherent. So I think that people can either become either or thinkers or they can become both and thinkers. And so the question then is as a company, should you actually look for people that have these ways of thinking, you know, and just grab them preformed, or is this something that, you know, you can inculcate in people? by having the right culture, by having the right organization. And then the the converse of that is if you think like this, you know how can you figure out whether you're going to land in a place that's going to allow you to thrive? Because I think that you can take people like this and throw them to certain environments and they're going to find it very difficult because they're going to feel like they have to change the entire environment so that they can be at their best.
1: Well, I think that last point is well suited, which is that if you know that this is the way that you think about the world, how do you part of how do you match yourself with an environment that enables you to do so? And that's a great question. You know, it's in my classes on the born versus made question. I often will toss that out to my students leader is born or made. And that's, you know, it's a classic argument, nature or nurture. And so too, I will say that in some ways that is a bit of a false dichotomy too. You know, one could argue that there are elements of what we were born with preferences that we have. I always find it interesting because in the born or made discussion, I will then ask my students who is a parent who has children because people always believe that everything is made until they have children they're like i don't know where this came from like they were born this way so so our perspective matters but the deeper point being that that there are elements of our preferences that then become we can expand upon based on the context that we are in that would get developed based on the context that we are in and so to that point i to believe that there's something I do think that people tend to have different levels of comfort with both and thinking that is preferential and I believe that there is a level on which we can teach and engage and create the context where people can engage more deeply with both and thinking I believe that's it's both and that the most powerful is when we can bring out the possibilities for people's both and thinking preferences I also believe that we can train around this and um, I struggle because I think that there is a movement, a strong movement for our organizations to pinpoint people's personalities, preferences, thought processes, and then select solely on that without taking the responsibility for how the organization cultivates and enables that. And so this is like the expansion, the massive expansion of the personality test industry. And in fact when we came out with our assessment, because as you said, we're psychologists and we have to have an assessment and inventory, one of the things somebody said to me, which which stopped me in my tracks, was, Oh, now somebody's gonna be using this to to select their people. And I was like, oh no. Because I don't think that's I do think that there's importance for fit, but I don't think fit is the only thing. I think that part of the responsibility of companies and part of the responsibility of individuals is learning, creating the context mm-hmm. at the company level for learning, creating the curiosity at the individual level for learning. And I think there's great possibility for learning.
0: Maybe you should have had the assessment at the beginning of the book and at the end of the book and <laughs> you could see if anything changed.
1: The assessment's also online for free, so anyone can just jump online and grab it for free. And we do worry about making it available. When we use the assessment in organizations, and we do, we make sure that we don't give the assessment independent of the training that goes along with it, because otherwise people will be like, okay, where do I fit? Well, what does that mean for my horoscope of what's possible and my fate and leave it at that? And I think that's not the way that we should use personality. And I also think that's not the way we should use these assessments. We should use them as indicators for how we can learn and grow.
0: So I was wondering what the implications are for business education, because you know the way in which we teach business, we have very discreet functional areas dictated by the divisions in the faculty, right? Because we're all specialists. And then students will take a class in statistics and they'll take a class in economics and so forth. And I mean, would we teach things differently if we really took seriously and or thinking, not just in terms of what classes we offered? I think some of what you're describing is almost co-curricular that's how people would think about it but even in in, say teaching courses on strategy and organizations would we teach differently if we really took this seriously
1: i love the provocation of that question And, and so i have half answers we have a community as i was saying a community of scholars that have been researching these ideas and are deeply interested in the questions of how to teach them and one entree point is how do we shift our classes so what can we do in our leadership classes? What can we do in our strategy classes in our existing structures? So we, because we published the book with Harvard Business School Press, put, have developed a toolkit to invite people into, well, what would it look like to teach in these classes differently? How could you take a case that you're doing, for example, and instead, once you say, what I often do is I'll say, okay, A or B, and then I'll invite people into, does it have to be an A or a B? What would it look like for A and B? Why is it that we're thinking A or B? And use that to talk about, as Chris Argyris says, like the double loop learning, the second order, what's our underlying assumptions about the question that we're asking? And so our toolkit invites people into how do you use those cases within the classroom to make change? I think you're asking a deeper question too, though, which is, do we change the structure of how learning happens broadly? And there's a really provocative question in there. And again, this is something I was just in conversation with this consulting firm in Denmark, which is, how experiential do people have to get? How much do people have to Mm -hmm. confront their emotional resistance? How much do we have to, it's one thing to talk about tensions, but it's another thing to feel that emotional tug of war between opposing ideas to really get how to navigate or how to shift our mindsets into not feeling like we have to prove that we're right and not feeling that we're right and they're wrong and not feeling like we have to make an immediate choice on our career decisions or on our leadership strategic decisions. And so I think there's an invitation to what would that look like for us in business schools.
0: Yeah. So I think part of it's about how you set the question up, but it's also about how do you curate these conversations, right? Because these conversations, maybe people need training wheels initially. They need to understand that conversations can be robust and need not be adversarial, and that they can arrive at viewpoints that benefit from exposure to other people's viewpoints, right? And so I think that would definitely affect classroom dynamics. But I want to go one level further. I want to go up to the kind of academic specializations and divisions that we have, right? Because while areas like organizational behavior, they will move around in terms of their focus, we have these institutional boundaries that have been around for a long time. Now, I know you've talked about the benefits of boundaries, but are there perhaps some obstacles to and or thinking that are created by disciplinary boundaries that might be too rigid?
1: Yeah, and I think both and really invites us into rethinking that in some ways. We were talking about this idea of separate and connect in service of the both and. When I think about so there's reasons that there are disciplines because it allows us to go deep, it allows us to focus, it allows us to understand. And there's limitations to those boundedness. And so the question is how do you structure your academic space? How do you structure your organizations so that you can both go deep and figure out what the integration is across? And organizations have been thinking about this with matrix organizations. I think we're a little behind the times in thinking about this in academia, where we do the deep dive, but we haven't Overlay the structure of the ways in which we can incentivize and encourage and structure the interdisciplinary. And I mean, when we we talk about it, we just don't organizationally or structurally enable it in a profound way. And I've seen little emphasis, like little initiatives, to make that happen. There might be a grant that's interdisciplinary. There might be a center that's interdisciplinary. I think that we could do a much more powerful interdisciplinary. I don't think that it, in my opinion. this is one of those either ors that we end up, we talk about, you mentioned the rabbit hole, you mentioned the trench warfare. The third pitfall that we talk about in either oring is overcorrecting, where we swing between alternatives. This is one of those structural alternatives that we've swung between in organizations and in academia, where we're like, we're so disciplinary, we've got to swing and we move into this massive interdisciplinary structure. And then we're like, nobody specializes and we don't have enough speciality. And so we swing the other way. And I think this is one of those places where, and that is one of the pitfalls of either oring, which is that we pick a point of view until it no longer services us that we move completely in the opposite direction. And like we say, we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And then we just keep in this yo-yoing experience. And so instead of that, how could we raise, the, this was a great question that we can raise into a both and way of what are the structures and what are the practices that we need to put in place in our organization? What are the incentives what are the, that will allow us, what are the guardrails that will allow us to both specialize into our disciplines and have profoundly interdisciplinary space?
0: Yeah, you also talk about negotiations, and I always think that negotiations is a very important class for people to take. I mean, you can pack so much in there, but just understanding that the pie isn't fixed, for instance, is such an important realization that people have to make, and negotiation is a great place to do that.
1: Yeah, 100%. And this idea of separate and connect is very tightly linked into straight back from Fisher and Uri's getting to, yes, straight back to Mary Parker Follett's creative conflict or, uh, you know, that that she's creative integration that she talked about in the 1920s, which is that you do a deep dive into different interests in each party in service of finding a way to expand the pie in a more holistic synergy. So again, it's this ebb and flow, pull apart and bring together on a dynamic level that reflects this idea of living in paradox. That is the essence of living in paradox, is this dynamic ebb and flow between opposing experiences.
0: Now, in, in your courses, do you have your students read Heraclitus or Lao Tzu or Robert Frost, right? <laughs> or do you just take them straight to the Academy of Management?
1: Not yet, but I should, and I should. I've been thinking about how what would be the great book's version of deeply engaging with paradox, and it's it is those ancient texts, it is work in psychoanalysis from like Jung it is deeply paradoxical. There's a great book that translates so much of the quantum physics work by Freehoff Kapra called The Tao of Physics it would be an invitation into, you know, poetry is deeply parried right, to the poetry of Robert Frost or others that that's deeply parodied. So there is an invitation, somebody just recently, and I'll just put this out there as an invitation. What I am so pleased about is that in response to this, art book coming out, people have been sending me these clips of movies and Shakespeare, the, the, paradoxical nature of Shakespeare and poems, little images. And I am collecting all of that and so tickled to have this repository of ways in which this idea shows up in our world.
0: Yeah, I certainly agree that as we become more technical and as our students get more and more in the weeds of data science and other technical fields, that's the need for them to expose themselves to things that are more philosophical and literary just gets all the stronger. Yeah. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me. This is great. The book, Both and Thinking. I don't know where the artwork came from, but you could have had a yin and yang on here because it reappears so often in the book. Appreciate it. Thanks so much.
1: Such a pleasure. Thank you for a great conversation.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes,